Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. Please welcome back the great Monsignor Pope. <laughs> okay, <clears throat> now I want to say that in my um, presentation tonight, I'm going to have to do very little review from last week because there's a lot of material to get through. So last week we, talked, we took a look at those, just, so let me try to do the review very quickly uh, because I have to get into some new material. There's a lot of material to cover today. And that would simply be that we talked a little bit about Cardinal Ratzinger who had written, is actually, um, I should have brought it with me, it's a big thick tome, volume 11 of his collected works. Uh, and um, uh, that's actually the first volume published, even though it's volume 11. But it's, this is a reference to a talk that he gave, and we looked at some quotes from him that reminded us that there's a long history, going back about a hundred years, to some of the problems that we're facing today about how people understand the Mass. Is it uh, a sinner's meal or a sacred meal? See, And um, uh, the sinner's meal is kind of no, no you know, stipulations, come one, come all, and um, Jesus did hold what we might call sinners' meals. He ate with sinners and publicans and so on. But that is not what the Mass is. And Cardinal Ratzinger, in that talk that's published in the, in the work, I gave you some quotes from it, and we'll leave it at that for now. But he gave a, a pretty good analysis that the, the Mass has to be understood really as a Passover or a family meal. And that has two very important implications. Um, and so we, we talked about, first of all, the need to receive Holy Communion worthily, free from serious sin. And we looked at St. Paul's quote from 1 Corinthians 11. And we also looked at some other quotes from Scripture. And then we also talked a little bit about not only that we as Catholics should be free from serious sin to approach the, uh, the communion table of the Lord or the altar, but rather, also, this is one of the reasons why, because it is a family meal that we don't are, and cannot offer Holy Communion to those who do not share our faith fully, namely Protestants and other Christians and non-Christians. Some people take this as being rude. However, there is a, um, we see it as a sign of respect, because it isn't, when you say amen, you're not simply saying Hey, I really believe that's Jesus, which a lot of Protestants don't believe anyway either, you know, for, for reasons of their own. But, but rather this, that I am in communion not only with Christ the head, but with his body, the church. I believe and accept all that the Catholic Church believes, teaches, and, uh, and professes to be revealed by God. Okay? That is to say, I am in communion with all the teachings of the Catholic faith, right? And therefore, not only should non-Catholics likely stay away, but there's even some Catholics who are major dissenters who need to really examine themselves carefully 
before they come to the altar? Am I really in communion with not just Christ in my sense of who he is, but also his body, the church? And so communion is not simply me and Jesus, but it's the whole Christ, members and head together. We are members of Christ's body, the church, and he is the head of the church. But again, all the teachings of the church I am in communion with. You see, that's part of the idea. So a few of these quotes we looked at. Some, we looked at that relevant scripture from 1 Corinthians 11. And just quickly to read it, so whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, see, will be guilty of sinning against the body of the Lord. And everyone then ought to examine themselves, right? And before they eat of the bread and drink of the cup, for those who eat and drink without discerning the body, eat and drink judgment upon themselves. Hmm? He goes on to say, this is why many of you are sick, and some of you have even died. Now, we talked about this again last week, so it's a quick review. It is not some rude, nasty, negative church that's saying this. this is, now, this is St. Paul. What the church is saying is, receive worthily, because if you don't, you don't bring blessing upon yourself. You bring condemnation. Hmm? It's like a doctor who knows you're allergic to penicillin, a good medicine. He better not give it to you, right? You better say, you got to stay away. We got to find some other way to make you well, but this is not for you, see. And if we fail to do this, it's not just a lack of charity, it's malpractice. So, again, Paul is making a very clear and very evident and forceful argument here that we ought not receive the Lord unworthily. And it is an act of charity to state what is true. All right? And that's, we talked a lot about that text. Likewise, again, we, we talked a little bit about some other relevant scriptures. I'm going to pass over them right now. Canon um, 915, right? Those who have been excommunicated or interdicted by imposition or declaration of penalty and others who obstinately persist in manifest grave sin are not to be admitted to Holy Communion. Oh, there goes that Catholic Church with all its rules. Right? Do you see, though, there's a charity to that rule. We don't want people to make their troubles worse. See? You see the vision, right? So we have to... You can interpret it, if you will, that, our, that, 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 that you know, canons like this are somehow nasty and negative and how dare they. But at the end of the day, it's like a doctor who knows that there are just some medicines that you cannot tolerate. He would be guilty of malpractice by prescribing it for you just because you asked for it, okay? And uh, we also talked a little bit from the catechism, some teachings there, similar, echoing Canon 915, all right? We also quoted some, some traditional material from the Didache, right? If, so, if anyone is holy, let him approach, namely Holy Communion. If he is not, let him repent, Maranatha, amen. Someone say Maranatha. <laughs> Or is it Maranatha? <laughs> okay. All right. And then again, no one, no one is to eat or drink of the Eucharist unless they've been baptized, right? So again, these are very early. That was written about 90 to 110 A.D. We're not talking some medieval church that invented these teachings, right? This goes right back. That's just about the same time St. John's Gospel was being finalized, all right, according to some. All right. Then um, we... Uh, 
Uh, again, we, we, we ended up with a little bit. I'm going I'm to review this memo, memo from Cardinal Ratzinger later, so let's pass over that. All right, so we looked at that remote inquiry about the sinner's meal. We looked at some scriptures and some related instructions, and we ended on this one here. If i gotta, I got to do this thing here. See that? What do we mean by communion? And I spent some time trying to describe to you again, why is it that we don't offer communion to non-Catholics? And again, going back to Cardinal Ratzinger's memo, or I should say teaching, at the beginning. This is not just a come one, come all meal. This is a family meal. If you go to the Passover, which is where the Mass comes from, it is not a meal that anybody was admitted to. Only the family. And sometimes if there were poor families, they would get together and share a Paschal lamb together. But you didn't just invite anybody to a Passover meal. Only your close, immediate family, those who were members of the Jewish faith, and the family members would gather. This was not a potluck. This was a very sacred, special meal where only the, the members, if you will, were invited. And that's where the Mass was first celebrated, in that context, not a sinner's meal. All right, so that's a quick... And, and by the way, then when we say then to Protestants again, we, we, we have some of these... Um, it's more than a me and Jesus concept. I gave you this image. Cardinal Whirl often said this, uh, had said this to us in one meeting. He said, somebody said to me, why can't I receive communion in your church? And the answer, well, you can. Really? How? Well, uh, well, as long as you acknowledge that I'm your bishop. We're not just talking some vague communion like we're all brothers, let's link arms, and, you know, we are. You know, uh, it, It's not just a kind of a vague type of communion, but a deep communion where we agree on fundamental teachings. That first of all, there are seven sacraments. That the Pope is the vicar of Christ. That baptism is necessary for salvation. That, that, that uh, women are not admitted to the priesthood. That uh, marriage is a sacrament. That uh, gay marriage is not something that we celebrate, and so on. We cannot claim to have communion with those who say, I don't believe all that, but I want your little wafer. And it isn't a little wafer. And we're not, we're not that vague about communion. There's something much more concrete and serious that we mean by communion, okay? The Greek concept of communion, koinonia, is very rich. It's not coffee and donuts fellowship. Koinonia means that I am in a deep relationship with you and you with me, where we hold each other accountable, where there is teaching, where our, our, our relationship is rooted in truth, where we are all together in, in a fundamental understanding of what is true and who God is and who I am in God, see? And sadly, there's not that kind of communion with many that we have. We can have some communion with them, but not the deep communion we call koinonia. And for this reason, we don't extend, we're not asking them to say amen, because our amen, when you come up, isn't just, yeah, I'm all with Jesus, he's a great guy, and I'm with him, see? That's not what your amen means at Holy Communion. Your amen means all that the Holy Catholic Church reveals, to, to be, uh, to, uh, to, uh, teaches, proclaims, and, and, and announces to be revealed by God, I accept. So that's kind of where we left it. By the way, on the Feast of Corpus Christi, uh, this show, sort of shows you that the, the whole Passover and all these great ancient ceremonies were linked not just to some event, but rather to a wholehearted acceptance. So, uh, on the Feast of Corpus Christi, if you were going to a Roman Catholic, uh, you know, uh, a ritual um, in, in the new form, you would have heard this reading. Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord, all the words of the Lord. 
all the words of the Lord. You got it? And rising early, he, the next day, he erected the foot, uh, at the foot of the mountain an altar and twelve pillars for the twelve tribes of Israel. And having set a certain young men of the Israelites to offer holocaust and sacrifice and young bulls and peace offerings to the Lord. So it's a liturgy, right? Moses took half the blood and put it in large bowls, and the other half he splashed on the altar. And he took the book of the covenant, and he read aloud to the people who answered, All that the Lord has said we will heed and do. Not just the things I like, not just the things I'm into. All that the Lord has said and done we will heed and do. And he took the blood and sprinkled it on the people. And This is the blood of the covenant of the Lord um, um, has made with you. Uh, in accordance with all these words of his. That's what your amen is about when you come up. All that the Lord has said and done and commanded, I will heed and do. All right? That's what your amen is about. And that's why it doesn't make sense for us to offer communion, first of all, to non-Catholics, out of respect for them. They're not there yet. There's something respectful about that. But also... There are some dissenting Catholics who should say, you know, I'm not on board. If you're not on board with the teaching on abortion and very serious doctrinal teachings of the church, such as so-called gay marriage or euthanasia, you've got to really say to yourself, am I really able to say amen when I go up? And that's the question. So that's kind of where we left it, all right? It's as quick as I can do it. You know, I'm, not, I'm never quick about anything, all right? Now, worthy reception of communion. We have already talked a little bit about the richer concept of what we mean by communion. It's not just, yeah, I think that's Jesus. I'm all with him. Amen. It's richer. You got that. All right. Now, but there's this question, what, do we, what does it mean to receive the Lord worthily or unworthily? Some of you asked me questions last week, and well, Father, none of us are worthy. But again, we're, we, we can use the word worthy in the univocal or the equivocal sense. The univocal sense means you're, you know, you're completely worthy and there's only one, you know, you're, you're a total saint. But the equivocal sense is worthy here means that I'm not aware of serious sin or mortal sin in my life. I am not perfect. Somebody say amen. Help me out here. <laughs> but I'm not aware of serious or mortal sin in my life right now. And that's the worthiness that we're asked to have in approaching. Because obviously, we're all sinners. Scripture says, if anyone says they have not sinned, they make God a liar. However, the question is, is there serious sin in my life? All right, so that leads to the next question. Is, what do we mean by mortal sin? Now, you see, unfortunately, we're Americans, and we want technical details about everything. That's just how we are. The Western, the modern Western mind controls by measuring. Did you hear that? The modern Western mind controls by measuring. I got news for you. You're not in control. What we, when we talk about mortal sin, we're not simply going to be able to put in a formula and out comes the answer. There's going to be a lot of factors that will determine whether, and one, whether there is a mortal sin or not. And at the end of the day, your conscience is important, but your conscience needs to be informed. It's not just, like, well, I feel it's okay. Don't do that. God gave you an intellect. Are you praying with me? So people just go on their feelings today. 
don't do that. God has given some actual data to us, and we're expected to intelligently assess it, take it in, but we do have to sometimes make a final decision. And I would encourage you, if there are doubts in your life, to continue to work with a confessor. Nemo judex in sua causa. Huh? No one is a judge in his own case. So regular confession is one way that we do this. But let's talk about what are some of the parameters? What do we mean when we say in the church, mortal sin? All right? uh, a man in the hospital was dying, and I went to see him, and I said, do you want me to hear your confession? He says, no, Father, I haven't killed anybody. Okay, well, there's a few other things that we might want to talk about, though. <laughs> you got that one down, okay, but how about, you know? And he says, well, that's all that matters. That's mortal sin, right? I said, no, that's not what we mean by mortal sin. All right, okay. So we want to have a little more uh, detail here. Now, so let's go on now. We're going to quote here from the Catechism of the Catholic Church, and it's hard for you to see that, I understand, but I'm going to read out loud. From the Catechism, what is mortal sin? When the will sets itself upon something that is of its nature incompatible with the charity that orients man toward his ultimate end, then the sin is mortal by its very object. Whether it contradicts the love of God, such as blasphemy or perjury, or the love of neighbors, such as homicide or adultery. But when the sinner's will is set upon something that of its nature involves disorder, but is not opposed to the love of God and neighbor, such as thoughtless chatter or immoderate laughter and the like, such sins are venial. Okay, from the Catechism 1856, if you want to look it up and read it, all right? If it is not redeemed by repentance and God's forgiveness, mortal sin excludes one from Christ's kingdom and the eternal death of hell. For our freedom has the power to make choices forever with no turning back. There is a day that you are going toward where your, your decisions will be forever fixed. You will either die loving God and your neighbor or not. And how that takes place will be forever fixed. Right? Now, that's a mystery that most of us say, hey, right now I can always make a change. I got that. But you, most of you who are a little older, I'm starting to get into that category myself, you know that your choices start to add up, don't they? And it gets harder and harder. Our hearts become fixed and it's harder to change. All right. So be careful. The Lord is trying to teach us something here. Now, again, I know this is all kind of a lot of verbiage, difficult, but let's continue to look at what the Catechism says. Now, for a sin to be mortal, it says here, three conditions must together be met. All right? Mortal sin is sin whose object is grave matter and which is also committed with full knowledge and deliberate consent of the will. Okay? So again, there, there can be problems in all three of those areas. Now, let's just say that when the church speaks of certain sins as being mortal sins, we're certainly speaking of it being in terms of, um, in terms of its object, all right? Grave matter. So, um, again, but here, too, there can be the circumstances really matter. So, is lying a sin? Is it always a mortal sin? But it's against one of the Ten Commandments. But you all know there's little sins and big sins. So, circumstances matter. Um, likewise, again, we, we would also say internally that one, you know, the object must be grave. It has to be a very serious uh, lie, but also that one deliberately and freely consents to understanding it to be a lie. Sometimes we pass on information that's not true, but we don't understand that. Or again, sometimes we're under grave pressure and we're scared and we tell a lie. 
And so sometimes, although it could be a serious lie, it's something we do because we're scared, and our, uh, therefore maybe the culpability is reduced. So again, this requires a little bit of a, a judgment or a discernment, doesn't it? See? So how can I just simply give you a list of mortal sins? Here they are, all 15. No, it's not that simple, right? Now, it goes on to say here, grave matter, what do we mean by grave matter? Well, grave matter is specified by the Ten Commandments, all right? Um, a cor a corresponding to the answer that Jesus gave to the rich young man. Do not kill, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and your mother. The gravity of sins is more or less great. Murder is graver than theft. But we must always take into account who is wrong. The violence against parents, for example, is graver than violence against a stranger. So all of these things that the catechism is trying to teach are factors, all right, in terms of what makes a sin mortal. We would generally look to the Ten Commandments to begin our list, right? That's what the catechism is saying. But even there, there are, there are things that admit of degree, right? So again, big lie, little lie. You know, you shall not bear false witness. That's one of the ten, right? Okay, you shall not miss Mass on Sunday, you know, to keep holding the Sabbath, right? Well, there's three feet of snow. See? So, again, the circumstances, right? Or, again, um, someone is sick. They're very sick. They can't get to Mass. Circumstances and things like that can affect. So, again, even the things that are listed in the Ten Commandments can admit of being less than mortal sins or sometimes not even a sin at all, like impossibility. You just can't get to church because there's three feet of snow. Okay, so there's going to be all sorts of factors. All right, <clears throat> now I want to say this. Before 1950, most catechisms emphasized simply the objective matter, right? Let me give you some uh, examples of, uh, some older priests tell me these things, and I, you know, I, I don't know how true they are. You know, we all exaggerate a little. <laughs> but let me tell you a couple of stories of, one, one priest said to me, he said, you know, he said, Back in the old days, people never, never thought about whether the circumstances or whether they freely consented to do it. They just knew that if they did it, they, they were in mortal sin. And he said, a woman came to me one day, back when I was first ordained, this guy, this priest was ordained in the early 50s or the late 40s, and he said, she said, Father, Father, you must hear my confession. It's, it's Women's Sunday, and I want to have confession, uh, communion. You must hear my confession. I've committed mortal sin on my way to Mass. Oh, on your way to Mass. Well, by all means, he stepped aside with her and he heard her confession. She says, bless me, Father, I have sinned. I broke my fast before communion. He says, well, how did you do that on your way? On my way to church, how did you do that? Did you pull in the Dunkin' Donuts? What happened? A bug flew in my mouth and I swallowed it. And he said, well, did you intend to eat the bug? He says, but Father, I swallowed it. It's nourishment. I've broken my fast. See, but now that might sound crazy, but there were a lot of people who were simply trained. This is a mortal sin, see? And they, they weren't ever really trained to look at the other aspects, you see. Um, now, for example, I would, I, even as a young, much younger priest than the priest who told me that story, I, I can tell you that after a big snowstorm when I was first ordained, I would have a lot of older Catholics come to me and say, bless me, Father, I've sinned. I missed Mass last Sunday. I said, well, there was two and a half feet of snow last Sunday. But, Father, I missed Mass. So they're only looking at the first criteria, right? And I want to just say that in the past, there was a kind of, um, an o I wouldn't say an overemphasis, but there was an emphasis on simply whatever is grave matter is mortal sin. And there was very little time spent on looking at whether I fully consented in the act 
or whether I even fully understood that it was wrong. See, but the Catechism teaches that three criteria, grave matter, full consent of the will, and proper discernment, or understanding that it's wrong, are important to assess a person's culpability, whether they're in mortal sin, or maybe in just venial sin, or maybe sometimes, occasionally, not in sin at all. Okay? Now, with that in mind, though, um, we today have gone to the other extreme, right? So if in the 50s and before there was this high overemphasis on objective grave matter, hmm, missing mass on Sunday is a mortal sin. And whether there's three feet of snow or, you know, breaking your fast and having communion is a mortal sin. Whether or not a bug flew in your mouth or whether you pulled into Dunkin' Donuts didn't matter. Well, it does matter. The woman didn't want that bug. Who wants to eat a bug, right? But, you know, we can have a good laugh, but we've gone to the other extreme now where, ah, objecting matters, all how I feel and what I think, and, well, I like God, and God likes me, and we're kind of like this, and, you know, God doesn't care about all this stuff. See? Well, well what about the fact that he put it in the Ten Commandments? Don't, don't miss Mass on Sunday, you know. Well, I know, but God doesn't care about all that, and I'm, I'm, I'm close with God in my heart. So all we have now is my discernment and um, my circumstances and, and the actual thing that's being done is very um, downplayed, right? Very downplayed. I often give people this example. <clears throat> Take a person who, I have a lot of keys I have to walk around with in my parish, like some of you have a lot of keys, and you, know, you put the... I take out, and a lot of my keys look alike, so I take out my key and I put it in the lock into the rectory and I try to turn it, but it won't turn. And I finally pull it out and say, oh, that's the church, that's the church key. I've got to put the rectory key in. Now, brothers and sisters, I had all the right intentions. I really thought I was doing the right thing, so I had all the proper discernment, but what I actually physically did was wrong, and it didn't turn the lock. There is actually something to be aware of, that there are objective things that even when we don't do them intentionally, and even when we don't do them with you know, malice and forethought, still we don't get the right result. I had all the right intentions to put the right key in, the right, in that lock. I, had all, I, thought, I thought for sure it was the right key. Why would I have done it? But it wouldn't turn that lock. So we've lost, though, in the modern age, any sense, I say any sense, but... We don't emphasize enough the objective qualities. It's all about good intention. I meant well. See? Just simply meaning well is all that's needed for morality. And that's just not true. You actually have to do the right thing. So let's see what I'm trying to show you is we have to have all three of these things in balance. All right? And we've lost, we've overcorrected from the 50s where everything was objectively you know, looked at. And now we've kind of gone to the other extreme where we don't look at the objective and we just talk about my intentions, my feelings, that I mean well. And that's not enough. All right, with that in mind, you have your Bibles. I will, I will have these things up on the screen. But if you'd like to open your Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, I want to give you some biblical list of mortal sins. Now, I say they're list. Okay, and we'll see, though, that although they are a list of things that tend to be mortal or serious, that exclude one from the kingdom, one can understand that there could be lighter matter in some of these things. So 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9 and following. <clears throat> there are a number of lists in the Bible that talk to us about things that are much more serious than other things. All right? So, for example, 
St. Paul writes, Do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. Now, there's a lot of people that say that some of these things on the list are not that big a deal today. Oh, I can go on fornicating. It's not, God doesn't care if I sleep with my girlfriend. Yes, he does. Apparently, he does. He's right there in his word. God, oh, God, God loves, and he doesn't care about homosexual acts. It's, it's, yes, he does. It says it right there. So let's not lose the objective, right? Let's not lose the objective. Now, again, greedy, drunkards, slanderers. Now, again, in these types of lists, though, we all admit well, there's big greed and little greed, right? I mean, how greedy do you have to be when to really be in mortal sin? Well, there's going to be some kind of a, there could be lighter matters in terms of, say, something like greed. Hmm? We all know that tr some people who are drunkards all have a serious uh, problem with alcohol. It isn't that they always act freely. They are uh, under a compulsion. Uh, now, we may be too quick to assume that today, but you get the idea. There are certainly some people who have lost their freedom when it comes to, to alcohol, uh, to some degree or another, that may render what they do less than mortal, and it may be so serious, their, their lack of liberty, that the only real solution for them is to be hospitalized and try to, you know, get help. But you get the idea, right? So even here, although we have a list, we're not simply able to say, well, this is, uh, this is it, we're done here. See, if you did this, you're off into mortal sin. But nevertheless, be aware of the list. Don't make light of it. See, There could be factors that would make some aspects on this list less than mortal, but at least you start to see. Why do I say mortal? Because they, those who do these things and refuse to repent will not inherit the kingdom of God. That is to say, they, if they die unrepentant, they will go to hell. All right, let's move on. Uh, so we have here, oh, I've got to do, how do I do this? There we go. Is that right? Okay. Galatians 5. The acts of the flesh are obvious, sexual immorality, sexual impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, again, we might say, well, give me some definitions here. What do we mean, man? Are there any degrees in all these things? You see, there's going to be a little bit of homework to do, but don't neglect the list. Don't just say, well, that's just... Uh, you know, okay? Let's at least look and ponder this kind of a list. Now, I don't have time to define all these things. By the way, one of them, though, I do would like to point out to you, this one here, uh, um, witchcraft, uh, sometimes called sorcery. The Greek word is pharmakeia, <laughs> pharmacy. And um, why is that important? Well, see, that's sort of hiding in that word pharmakeia is contraception and abortifacients. These were things that sorcerers and you know, people who practice witchcraft, people would go to these people for their pharmakeia to end pregnancies or to, um, you know, do, or to prevent pregnancies. So again, uh, this is one of those, you know, debatable topics, I think, in Bible scholarship, but it is one of those texts that we ought not completely overlook when it comes to questions of what we call uh, abortifacients and uh, contraceptives, okay? Pharmakeia, 
pharmacy, or we get the word pharmacy, is actually the root word behind that word witchcraft. More often translated sorcery, but again, Greek, the Greek root being pharmakeia. Now, uh, let's go on to the next one. I, I can't spend a lot of time on these, but I, I just want you to see there are, if you will, kind of lists of sins that the Bible warns us particularly about. So Ephesians uh, chapter 5 and verse 3 and following. Among you there must not be any hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, coarse joking, which are all out of place, but rather give thanks. And I want you to be sure of this. No sexually immoral, impure, or greedy person, in effect an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Do not let anyone deceive you with worthless arguments or empty words. Because of such things, God's wrath comes down upon the disobedient. Do not be partners with them. Heavy words. Hmm? Heavy words. The very stuff that a lot of people make light of today, God's Word does not. See? So one of the reasons that the church therefore does speak to us about sexual immorality is very often a mortal sin is because of texts like these. We're not just repressed and uptight. <laughs> We're actually inheritance. We have an inheritance from the Word of God. Now, why does God care about this stuff? Well, I mean... I don't have time to give you a full catechesis tonight on human sexuality, but my brothers and sisters, come on. You, you, what, promiscuity, wow, it's really porn. Promiscuity has led to incredible hurts in our culture, you see. I mean, you start, look, just what's the body count? All the abortions, the, the, the sexually transmitted diseases, the teenage pregnancies, the children raised never knowing their father, just the endless pain and grief that goes with this misbehavior. And the ones who pay the bill are the children. Now, God cares about children, and God cares about marriage. And so God speaks to us. This is very serious. You are attacking the pillars and the roots of a culture when you salute and laugh about and make light of sexual immorality. Whether it's heterosexual or homosexual, these things attack the heart and the root of a culture. See? So we're, you might say, well, we're not uptight, but maybe God's uptight. No, God is not uptight. God gave you sexual desire. God knows. He, God taught you how to dance. But there's a place, see, and God, God wants that respected. Okay, let's move on. Okay, Revelation 22. Look, says the Lord, I am coming soon. This is Jesus who speaks. My reward is with me, and I will give to each person according to what, I have, what they have done. I am the Alpha, I am the Omega, I am the first, I am the last, the beginning and the end. Now blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and may go through the gates of the city. But outside are the dogs and those who practice magic arts. Again, that's that same pharmakeia, okay? Sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you this testimony. I am the root and the offspring of David. I am the bright morning star. Oh, Jesus doesn't care about these things. Apparently he does. Apparently he does. He says, outside, excluded, are. And there's your list. But let's not completely lose our way that there are also some other sins that are spoken of, of, of a very different kind of a nature. You know, God is very passionate about how we care about the poor. Now, you just can't read the Bible 
and come away without a very under, thorough understanding that God is passionate about what we might call social injustices where the poor are not respected or taken care of. And so let's look at this one from Matthew uh, 25. Hmm? Jesus will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, to the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. I was hungry, you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, you did not invite me. I needed clothes, you did not clothe me. I was sick, and I was in prison, but you did not look after me. Hmm? So, uh, the, the, and those will also answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? And he will reply, I tell you, when you did not do it for one of the least of my brethren, you did not do it for me. And they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. Hmm? Now again, how will we best care for the poor is a matter for debate. Big government program versus more private. And, you know, I, we have not done well with caring for the poor, right? in many ways. However, it is still something that all of us have obligations. And it isn't just the poor and it's an abstraction, but maybe you've got some members of your family who are in trouble and need help. See, And to simply become insensitive to that and say, ah, that's their problem. Uh, God might say you can come to a point where you lack such charity that it is a damnable sin. See, So again, we, we, we want to understand, therefore, that God asks us to look to our hearts and to become aware that there are times where we can become so deeply mired in behaviors and sinful practices that our heart just dies. It no longer loves God or who God loves or what God loves. And what does God love? God loves mercy. God loves chastity. God loves forgiveness. By the way, he warns in today's gospel, for example, right in the, today, the daily mass, for if you forgive men's sins, your father will forgive you. But if you do not... Your Father will not forgive you your sin. So there can come a point where we are so mired in a refusal to forgive that it becomes damnable. See? Jesus says if you bring your gift to the altar and you find your brother has something against you, go first and be reconciled. Don't even think of coming to the altar until you've reconciled. See? So I cannot simply give you a perfect little list. I've just tried to give you some biblical list and kind of a survey. People make light of mortal sin today. They think it almost never happens, but that is not what Scripture says. Scripture warns. Scripture does not go on long psychological things about how and why it might not be mortal. We do have a tradition, however, that there are times where, for example, a person may um, be angry and they let loose and punch somebody, you know? And it could be very serious sin. But on the other hand, passion does somehow mitigate some of our culpability. We do have this tradition. So I would simply ask you, be honest with yourself. You know deep down inside. Now you're not a judge in your own case, that's why we have confession. So get to confession regularly, but be honest. And accept the fact that all of us can become very hardened, very nasty, unforgiving, unmerciful, unkind, bitter, jealous, vengeful, unchaste, unkind, irreligious, forgetful of God, just casting off our duties. And that can become increasingly and very deadly serious in our life. And we ought to become more aware that this is simply part of our reality. 
Okay? Now, this is not to be a whole course in moral theology. I can't do that with you today. But it is a very legitimate question that we have before us today. What do we mean by mortal sin? Because, again, we talk about worthiness to receive communion. What we mean is not that you're a perfect saint who's never sinned, but rather this, that you're not aware of mortal sin. Well, then, okay, Father, what's mortal sin? And I don't have a mathematical formula to give you. I simply ask you to listen to God's Word, I simply ask you to read the Catechism. I simply ask you to use common sense and to have an honest assessment. If you're uncertain, get to confession regularly. Most of us. We can go and... I, I find as a confessor one of two struggles. There can be this struggle where a person is um, very flippant. They don't, they don't think they've ever sinned. And there are the others who are fairly scrupulous. And we have to find that middle range that we're not despairing of God's mercy, but we're honest with ourselves. We can become very nasty in a moment. <laughs> we can have very hard hearts and become very deeply mired in, in a stance that is very offensive to God. Okay? So, if your conscience tells you this, and, and be regular about assessing your moral state, get to confession. And even if you're not sure, well, it could go either way, then go to confession regularly. Okay? I'm not inviting you to become scrupulous, but I'm, I, we need to overcome this sort of blasé kind of attitude today where everybody just makes light of sin. I say everybody. I don't mean everybody here. You know what I'm saying, right? So I offer you that, all right? I wish I could say to you, here's the perfect mathematical formula. The Western mind wants to control by measuring. Sorry. This is a relationship we're in with God and with each other. And relationships have a lot of give and take. But you know. You know. Now, I'm going to just tell you, I go to confession once a week. I figure as a priest, you know, why not? You know, I get together with priest buddies about once a week, and I just go once a week. You know, I'm not saying I'm, I'm obviously committing mortal sins every single week. I'm not saying that to you, but I'm just saying to you, why not be frequent with confession? Because these lists are pretty, pretty expansive. A lot of us do these things from time to time. You know, we fall into these ways of thinking. And we can be very unforgiving, very greedy, and very self-centered if we're not careful. And then that, we go on to sexual sins. We go on to other areas of, of injustice, or we blow off our religious duties, and we're just not very serious. And at some point, that can get serious. All right. All right, now I know there'll be some questions at the end. I've got to move on a little bit. Uh, but let's move on to the, uh, the question now of communion itself, um, which is, uh, and I apologize, I mean, this is not a moral theology course. I cannot simply spend, I mean, maybe we'll do this course someday. I'll, I'll do it with you, all right? I promise. If they ask me, I'll do it. All right. But, um, but this is not the time where I can fully lay out for you, you know, a, a whole moral treatise, all right? But, so I apologize. We have to move on. But some of the relevant issues that, that face us now as a church regarding worthy communion, all right? So we have the problem of so-called, you know, the, the divorce and remarriage issue. There's a lot of people out there today who are divorced and remarried, and there are a lot of pastoral issues associated with it. We also have the problem of public sinners and dissenters. Frequently, the most newsworthy are the politicians and so on. And then, is there a way forward for us? So let's look at, first of all, these two most critical issues that sometimes are flashpoints in our church, in our discussion, all right? Let me give you a little bit of background about Holy Communion that I think is important, too. A little bit like Cardinal Ratzinger gave some background. 
In the last century, I'm talking about the 20th century, there was a great movement, uh, beginning with Pope Pius X, who really thought that Catholics were not getting to communion frequently enough. Did not Jesus say, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you? Now yet, people had largely been schooled all the way back into the Middle Ages, but it was really kind of a, a rare thing that people went to communion, maybe once a year, maybe, uh, maybe even just once or twice in their whole life. And why? Well, they, I'm, I'm not worthy, and you know, Jesus is holy, and I'm not. And so there was a kind of a, a heavy schooling in that department. Now, in order to try to overcome some of that, Pope Pius X began some initiatives that um, were meant to try to get people back to communion more frequently. So he did a couple of things. He said, uh, look, he said, um, Let's first of all move the age of First Communion from about 15 or 14. You know, like Nana, my, by the way, my, my aunt and uncle are here, <laughs> the Clems, Dave and Ellie Clem. But I remember Nana, Nana told me that she didn't receive her First Communion until she was like 14. And that was before Pius X um, um, and, uh, had made this. But he, he moved it down to age 7, trying to say maybe the children will lead them. So let's get the children receiving communion, especially in those innocent years. And let's begin to get more frequent communion. And then he started proposing things like men's Sundays and women's Sundays and some youth Sundays. What was the idea? Well, all the men would go to confession on Saturday. And the priests were sliding the doors all day Saturday. And, and, and then all the men would pile into church and go to communion that Sunday. And they'd be just, uh, just distributing, distributing. And um, some magnificent, there was, and, and then the women's Sunday, the same idea, Saturday confession, Sunday they all went to Mass and they all received communion, and then the youth Sunday, and so on. So the idea was to get people back to communion maybe like once a month, and, uh, and so on. Well, all, all that's good, right? I mean, we want to get people, Jesus wants to feed us. And that's a good thing. But what sometimes happens in the church is when we have a problem, we overcorrect, Right? And this is uh, not just a church problem, it's a human problem. So what I think started to happen was we began to, um, it, most of you who grew up in the 50s and the 40s remember, you remember, my gosh, if you're going to go to communion on Sunday, you better get to confession on Saturday. Now, that wasn't technically true. I mean, it's only if you're aware of mortal sin, right? But it was just the routine. It was the discipline. All right? But then again, we, as you all know, we went through a cultural revolution and a lot of things went through the church as well. And there began to become a sort of a soft peddling of sin. And come one, come all, let's all go to communion. And now just about everybody goes to communion and very few go to confession, at least as often as they should. All right? But the question is to find this balance, but we, we haven't gotten it right. The idea of getting people back to frequent communion is a good one. I'm a big believer. Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you, says the Lord. So, frequent confession, frequent communion is the best match. But we sort of overcorrected. Let's not worry so much about communion, I mean confession. Let's just get them to communion. See, that was the thinking. All right. Now, therefore, um, we, we want to find this balance. But that's a little bit of a background issue for you. So let's begin now. Why do we say that the, there are some people, though, who are in kind of ongoing situations that they really can't resolve right now, or it's going to take some time? Namely, in this case, the divorced and remarried. This became a very big issue at that extraordinary synod. And by the way, there's a little booklet about that tries to explain some of that from Catholic Answers. I think one of you shared it with me. But it um, goes about a little bit of the background. It, it takes a very clear stance that, uh, against Cardinal Casper and his proposal. But I would say that um, 
That's a little book that will give you some handy ideas. But why, and I'm going to just be clear with you, I am of the school of thought that we cannot offer Holy Communion to those who are in invalid marriages. And the reason isn't my opinion. It's just something Jesus said. Something Jesus said. So let's begin to look uh, at... Uh, some, um, some of the, uh, the, uh, the scriptures that we, we want to see. If you have your Bibles and you want to open to Matthew 19, chapter, uh, chapter, um, uh, you know, verse 3 and following, Matthew 19, uh, verse 3 and following. Otherwise, you can read it up here. Now, some Pharisees came to Jesus and to test him, said, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any cause? He said, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast or cling to his wife, and the two of them shall become one flesh. They are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one divide. And they said to him, Then why didn't Moses command to give the certificate of divorce um, and send her away? And he said to them, Because of your hard hearts, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but at the beginning it was not so. And so I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, we'll get to that in a minute, and marries another, commits adultery. So the Lord's word for being in a second marriage, divorcing and marrying somebody else, is adultery. Now that's his word, it isn't mine. It's his because it's his, it's also mine, but you see what I'm saying. This is not Father Pope being judgmental. See, this is the Lord's word. Now, he does have this little Methene exclusion. I don't have time. This is not a Bible study course tonight. We can't go into it. But the Catholic understanding of that sexual immorality clause is incest. In other words, it's a marriage that's invalid from the get-go because as the, as the gospel left the, Greek, the Jewish world and went into the Greek world, there were a lot of fuzzy boundaries when it came to marriage. Weird things like people marrying their own mother and um, odd stuff, some odd stuff, stuff that the Jewish people would never recognize as a lawful marriage, kind of like gay marriage today, right? Just, it's not a marriage at all. You can call it whatever you want, but it ain't a marriage. And so the Lord said, I'm not talking about those things. But otherwise, if a man is legitimately and lawfully married to a woman and he divorces her and marries someone else, he is in adultery. And that's his word. So that's the first one. Now, by the way, St. Paul has something similar that he says. Um, and this is in um, 1 Corinthians 7. To the married, I give this charge. Not I, but the Lord. The wife should separate from her, should not separate from her husband. But if she does, should she remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband? And the husband should not divorce his wife. Okay? So again, this is divorce and remarriage is not something that the early church countenanced. Now, but Jesus, can't you give us some exceptions? Aren't there some possibilities? There's a little wiggle room. It's just not there. It's just not there. Now, we do have in the church something called annulment, because if you go back to this previous text, he does say here what God has joined together. Um, let's see. Uh, let's see um, hmm, do I have it there? Well, I'll just quote from memory. Jesus says, what God has joined together, let no one divide. So the question is, just because two people are drunk in Las Vegas and go before a JP and swear out their vows, is that necessarily an act of God? What do you think? No. Probably not. Probably not. 
Um, so there might be, um, hmm, there might be some other situations. Uh, let's take, a, um, uh, let's take a, a young couple that's really being pressured to get married by their family. Oh, we're so happy you all have met, and this, this is just going to break our whole world wonderful by getting married. And they have all kinds of social pressure. They don't really want to do it, but they do it. Is that necessarily an act of God? Does that sound like that to you? I don't know. It's hard to say. Or um, let's take a couple who are engaged, and Ann Alpha has brought her non-refundable plane ticket, and the, well, the reception is all paid for, and it's all ready to go, but they have very serious doubts that they should get married. But because of the social pressure, omnia parata sunt, everything is prepared, they get married, and they know they shouldn't, right? And um, they get married because of the social pressure. So sometimes the church can say, well, there are some, if you can give us some evidence, see? Or maybe there was a big lie that one party told the other, see? I didn't know that you owed $500 million. <laughs> or uh, I, I didn't know that um, you had been, uh, uh, I did not know that you were incapable of the marital act. Or I did not know that you did not want the good of children. There can be lies or things that exclude. And this is no longer marriage, what we mean by marriage. Um, there can, so the church can investigate uh, on these circumstances and, and uh, declare that a marriage was null. That is to say, there never really was a marriage. So the person is now free to marry because they really weren't married. Are there too many annulments given? Probably. Because most of them are given on very vague grounds that we call the lack of due discretion, right? Which is uh, basically immaturity. Immaturity. But I'm not here to rule on anybody's individual annulment. I think most of us accept the fact that there's probably an awful lot of annulments being given on fairly vague grounds. But that's not my job tonight to tell you what the church is doing or not doing. I'm not a tribunal. I am not the Cardinal Archbishop of Washington or of Arlington. That is, I'm just here to tell you that there are debates in the church whether we give out annulments too freely. But the question is that if a person is in a marriage, a second marriage or a third or whatever, and they are living, objectively speaking, in what the Lord calls adultery. And that's a very serious sin. It's one of the Ten Commandments, and it cannot be simply dismissed by the church. Come on, don't worry about that. Come on up to communion. Now, one of the sad things, though, about this, because of our culture, is that people are in very poignant pastoral situations. They don't usually show up crassly uh, having married. They often, they were away from the church for 10, 20, 30 years, and during that time, they got married in one marriage, out in another marriage, and they married somebody who's married to somebody else, and they show up at your door, and they're a canonical nightmare. <laughs> you know, you want to receive them into the church, but you've got to go through lots of paperwork. It's just awful, you know. And it's pastorally problematic. It's difficult. These are good people who got lost, and they found their way back to Christ, and then suddenly you've got all these rules to throw on them. All right, I understand. It's egregious. It's difficult. It's painful. Usually we can take them through the process and try to get them fixed, you know, into a place where they can get back to communion. There are just, though, going to be those times where, because they're just not able to get an annulment for any number of reasons, we have to honestly say to them, I can't tell you you can approach the table of the Lord. Because Jesus says this is adultery. I don't disrespect you personally. I don't hate you. Maybe you've been in your current marriage for like 30 years and the one marriage you had before only lasted six months. I get all that. But I can't say just come on up. There's just some things the church can't do because we reverence God's word. And Jesus didn't give a lot of loopholes here. 
all right? And so to teach them a little bit about, there are other blessings of coming to Mass. And if they honestly feel in their heart, I just don't think that the Lord regards me in the terrible state. I'm trying to do the best I can. It's not appropriate for me to leave my wife and my three young kids just because I need to stay in this. All right, I get that. I don't disrespect you personally, but I will say to you, I can't offer you Holy Communion right now. But come, hear the word of God, pray, and do ask the Lord, Lord, you know my heart. The church can't do everything, but just, Lord, I, I unite myself to you. But we can be kind, but we cannot just simply throw stuff away that the Lord has given us. I hope you understand that, right? Kind, pastoral, but we need the clarity. We cannot just throw overboard things that the Lord said. Well, he had a bad day. He didn't really mean it, or he doesn't understand your situation. There are just some things that the church can't do, okay? Okay. So I, I, I have to, because we're, we're moving, time is getting close to the end, I need to continue moving on. Um, we do have, though, again, lots of possible ways of helping people to get an annulment today. And you may or may not, you may have strong feelings about some of those things one way or the other. I'm not here to talk about that tonight. Another course. <laughs> but not me, I'm not a canon lawyer. <laughs> but, um, but let's move on, though, to the other big bugaboo, which is... Um, this communion of, uh, I'm sorry, um, um, I'm sorry, we already had that, and, okay. Now, the, um, the question of communion to public sinners and to notorious dissenters. Now, public sinners, this is rarer today because we live in big cities and things are very impersonal. Very few people know people that much. But in smaller towns and so on, the idea of public sinners might become more of a thing. But there are always going to be those situations where somebody is in very, uh, you know, a mafiosi or, or something like this. Or in the old days when people were more aware of who was shacking up and things like this. Um, these things uh, would at times exclude. It becomes a scandal for the communion to be given to somebody who is in a very objectively and visible uh, sinful state. And therefore, we are told that we are not to offer communion under these circumstances. There also comes, though, the situation which is more common today, very notable dissenters, particularly, you know, they got the big rainbow on and I'm going to come up and receive communion very publicly, you know, or um, there's going to be the politician who not only agrees with abortion, but actually votes to fund it and so on. And this, of course, has become quite a bugaboo in the church. Now, um, this is from Cardinal Ratzinger's, um, I'm sorry, this is, I'm sorry, that's not, um, this is from um, the, uh, yes, yeah, this is from Cardinal Ratzinger's memo to Cardinal McCarrick in 2004. Cardinal Ratzinger at that time said this, the church teaches that abortion or euthanasia is grave sin. The encyclical letter Evangelium Vitae with reference to judicial decisions or civil laws that authorize or promote abortion or euthanasia states that there is a grave and clear obligation to oppose these things by conscientious objection. Now in the case of an intrinsically unjust law, such as a law permitting abortion or euthanasia, it is therefore never listed to obey it or to take part in a propaganda campaign in favor of such a law or to vote for it. Christians have a grave obligation of conscience not to cooperate formally in practices, even if permitted by civil legislation, which are contrary to God's law. Indeed, from the moral standpoint, it is never licit to cooperate formally in evil. This cooperation can never be justified, either by invoking respect for the freedom of others or by appealing to the fact that a civil law permits it or requires it. 
So some policy, well, I'm, I, I'm, a, I'm a civil servant. I can't really bring my faith into this. Yes, you can. You should. And if you want to publicly vote to fund abortion or euthanasia, and I would add to the list now, gay marriage and so on, these things that are dramatically opposed to church teaching, you ought not present yourself for Holy Communion any longer. You just not ought to do it. Now, the question then is, why do bishops not enforce this? See, and I don't, I can't, I'm not a bishop. I'm a pope. <laughs> but um, there are some who do. There are some who do. Um, and I have had conversations with Cardinal World that I'm not free to share with you. But I will say this, that um, when I get to this way forward, we're going to get to in just a moment, because I'm, I'm running a little late. I've got I to try to wrap this up. I think we're dealing with a situation that we could say does involve some lack of leadership. However, I think what's happened is that we have become so out of order in, throughout the church with the idea of worthy communion that it starts to look like you're singling somebody out who's simply because they're a public figure and also happen to be a politician. Can somebody say third rail? And you're singling somebody out so a lot of bishops are reticent to publicly address these things. Now, ideally, hopefully, they have gone. I, I will say I did speak to a bishop um, who will not be named. It is not Cardinal World I'm referring to, who has said, I have spoken to these people privately. I have told them they should not present themselves. I have told them they are in serious sin, but they still keep coming. I'm not going to have a fist fight or a public showdown at the altar rail. There, aren't, there are no altar rails today. <laughs> But anyway, you get the idea. I mean, there are, but you know, all right. <clears throat> but um, so this bishop particularly said, I have acquitted my duty with them privately. I cannot, I cannot be a police officer. See. Um, the other question um, it will come up sometimes again. A lot of bishops, and I've heard this uh, not from any particular bishop, but a number of them have written, that they feel like they're being set up. Um, you, we want you to just publicly disavow this per particular politician who just happens to be a Democrat. Um, and, um, uh, we, you know, we're, we're gonna, we got your back, but they don't really got my back. And I'm going to pay dearly because people are not going to hear a proper disciplinary action within the church. They are going to interpret it as a political action. And I, 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 it is not the mess. I don't want to get into that mess. I will handle it privately, but I will not do it publicly. And that's how some of them speak. Should they handle it publicly? Probably, because these people publicly dissent and publicly do this. But I would suggest to you that maybe, let's read a couple of other things that the Cardinal uh, says. Now, not all moral issues, he says, have the same weight. Because here sometimes people say, well, you know, you, 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 you don't do this to politicians who are in opposition to the immigration policy of the Catholic Church, see? and so on. So again, there's a, a lot of this too, right? But it says, not all the moral issues have the same weight as abortion and euthanasia. For example, if a Catholic were to be at odds with the Holy Father about the application of capital punishment or in the decision to wage war, uh, he would not, for that reason, be considered unworthy to present himself to receive communion. While the Church exhorts civil authorities to seek peace and not war and to exercise discretion and mercy in imposing punishment on criminals, it may still be permissible to take up arms or to repel an aggressor or to have recourse to capital punishment. There are may be legitimate diversity of opinion among 
Catholics, even among Catholics, about waging war or applying the death penalty, but not, however, with regard to abortion and euthanasia. And I would also add gay marriage, which was not really on the agenda when the Cardinal wrote this just, 15, uh, just 11 years ago. Now, um, regarding the grave sin of abortion, he goes on to say, um, um, or euthanasia, um, when a person's formal cooperation becomes manifest, Understood in the case of a Catholic politician who has consistently campaigned and voted for permissive abortion and euthanasia laws, his pastor should meet with him, instructing him about the church's teaching and informing him that he is not to present himself for Holy Communion until he brings an end to the objective situation of sin and warning him that he will otherwise be denied the Eucharist. That's what's supposed to happen. Now, by the way, you notice he says pastor. He doesn't say bishop. So we like to, you know, shake our fists at the bishops, and maybe so, but... You need to first look at us. See, you really do. And I, I'm not going to give any, uh, any information that might tell you who or what or whatever, but I've had situations where I've had to sit down with people, some of them of some prominence, and say, um, I, I have to warn you. Not, to, not only should you not come to communion, but if you don't repent, you'll probably go to hell. So I think that we, uh, we have to sort of uh, allow this to be done. I think the best way to do it, first of all, is privately, right? Privately. And um, what's a way forward, though, given the politics, the reticence of the bishops to enter into that third rail? So let me, let me try to end. By the way, this is just a reminder. Canon 915 says to us, look, if you've been excommunicated, interdicted, uh, or you're aware, you know, you're, you're in a situation of manifest grave sin, you are not to be admitted to Holy Communion. All right. So what would be a way forward? Um, a way forward. Let me suggest a few things. Because, again, I don't think we're going to just be mad enough that the bishops are going to change their, their stance. Most of them are just not going to publicly handle this matter, of politicians anyway, right? And I'm not here to judge the bishops. I'm just trying to say that's their prudential judgment. You have your feelings. I have my feelings. We might have whatever number of feelings. These are fundamentally how best to handle this situation does involve some prudential judgments. You know, would my actions be properly understood? Would they be the best way forward? How should we handle this? So I would suggest that as a way forward, we need to broaden the whole conversation. So, for example, a church-wide, a church-wide instruction of all the faithful, see, can avoid the impression that certain people or issues or groups are being singled out. See, the problem is systemic in the church. It isn't just the politicians. It really is systemic. There's a lot of people that go to communion, sometimes in ignorance, who should, really shouldn't be. And we need, therefore, to go at the, we need to go broad and re-instruct the whole church, kind of like an initiative like tonight. Hmm? All right. Secondly, I would say, many today, for various reasons, should not come forward for communion on any given Sunday. All right. Number three, encouragement to receive communion with great regularity, notwithstanding, communion must be worthy, lest the opposite of the intended effects be manifest. Also, confession should become more readily available prior to Masses and at other times. We must give a clear but charitable instruction. It must be more offered more ardently in parishes and from the bishops and to all the faithful. My recommendation, they're not listening to me, but I would say to the entire bishops' conference, let's really do a pastoral initiative, a teaching, churchwide, throughout the country, where we do kind of a conference like this, 
I haven't done it perfectly, but you see the idea. We can start to look at some of these texts, help people to understand that it makes sense, that it's respectful of God, it's respectful of your conscience, it's also respectful of those who aren't Catholic and can't reasonably say amen. It's respectful, but it's clear and it's church-wide. All right? And then, once we've done that, we can begin to move forward with an occasional, if somebody is a manifest public sinner, continues to come forward, then I think it makes more sense to say, uh-uh, I'm going to publicly announce that shouldn't have happened. And if a politician or someone, not, not just a politician, it could be just some other famous person who's in some very irregular situation, just comes right on up, that the bishop would, I think, be more free at that point to say, that should not have happened. And I will tell you my faithful, I will, I will instruct this person again, all right? So again, I would uh, perhaps leave you with some of that idea, all right? Now, I have to end, I'm way over time. So let's, uh, I'll end, I know we're going to have a little time for questions if you want to stay, and so I'll, I'll end now. But God bless you for your patience, and this is a, a lot of issues. And a lot of issues. <clears throat>
And I think people kind of have an idea in their life sometimes that there's this nice guy named Jesus, and he was just like nice all the time. But then when you actually quote him, they, they, it doesn't seem to affect their approach, you know. Um, well, I just quoted him, and he doesn't agree with what you just said. Well, I'm just sure he wouldn't do that. Well, I'm sorry, but we have to go fundamentally with the written text we call Revelation. So that would be, yeah. Monsignor, I would ask you to tie together decisions forever fixed with full knowledge. Alonzo has full knowledge. I have full knowledge. You have full. The, the, and so I have full knowledge. You have full knowledge. Those are not equal. It's, full knowledge is not a static thing, yet decisions are forever fixed. I'm, I'm having trouble with that. Well, that's, of course, when we, well, we don't know exactly when that happens for us, when our decisions are forever fixed. We know that angels decide once for all. We, we know that for us, we're in a, in statu vie, right? We, we do sometimes change our minds. But there comes a point when our decisions do become forever fixed, certainly at death. It may happen before, but I think fundamentally death would be probably the most clear moment. Well, I think the full knowledge here is not meant univocally, but more equivocally, that full enough. In other words, we, we understand well enough that this is wrong. That's what the criteria for mortal sin, it isn't that you have absolute ontological knowledge about something, but rather um, you, you have enough knowledge that you're responsible for it. Oh, Monsignor, if uh, receiving communion in the state of mortal sin is is church doctrine um, this conference uh, the family that the pope is uh, is being uh, catering to caspers i mean ca uh, cardinal caspers more or less on his mercy idea of this um, what can we expect that why are they discussing this so much if it's doctrine it should just be that yeah i don't know why this being discussed the way it is i don't i don't know how anyone could be this uh, confused um, there's a problem when people go to communion, and it, this ties in with the um, issue that we're talking about. A lot of them come up with their hands in their pockets or not. The way they come up, it's obvious that they don't really understand what's going on. And I know that the priest says, behold the body of Christ. At EW10, they have um, a woman come on or a nun saying, um, for those who cannot yet cannot receive communion C could is there anything that would prevent us from saying something like that um, we ask you now to um, to discern uh, or something like that yeah we talked a little bit about that last week I think we could be more frequent with that announcement um, I certainly do it at funerals and uh, at Easter and um, uh, times like that not on every single Sunday do we do that but it might be a good thing you know to as I say, as a church-wide policy, to sort of encourage people to discern before they come forward, kind of like the Didache, let him who is worthy reproach, if not, let him repent. So uh, a very simple uh, statement could be made. That might be a good idea. I heard in Scripture in one of the epistles that um, people who are like um, public sinners, um, you should not be partner with them or eat with them and stuff like that. Can you still be, um, and I, um, like people who are public sinners or something, can I, um, you can still be friends with them, right? Or maybe like people, okay. I think that, uh, first of all, Paul refers here particularly to a brother. In other words, a fellow Christian who's walking in a disorderly way. And first and foremost, he has in mind that we should not eat with them, that we should in fact 
you know, in that sense, it's a kind of a, a fraternal correction. Mm -hmm. Let's really get this brother to realize he's not walking in communion with us anymore. Uh, Paul doesn't say, I don't say this about unbelievers. If that's the case, you wouldn't be able to interact with anybody. <laughs> so uh, he he's mainly has believers in mind when he has that edict, you know, not to eat, quote, eat with sinners and so on. Um, now, there could be, although uh, a little further distinction to be made, there could be just some people that even if they're not believers, we need to be careful about the company we keep. You know, bad company corrupts good morals. And especially as a young man, you make sure you're careful about the friends you pick. Let your acquaintances be many, but your close friends be few. That's what Scripture says in the book of Proverbs. Thank you, Mark, for your Thank you. All right. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist. Pray for us.